0: I can think of plenty of better teachers uh, that could speak on this subject, but I feel privileged to do so because this is a fun topic. I cannot imagine Luther being afraid, but undoubtedly it was with fear and trepidation that he said, here I stand, I can do no other. He stood alone. On many occasions, he was the one standing, not necessarily initially, against the Catholic Church because he didn't want to defy his own church, he wanted to reform it. But suddenly he found himself the lightning rod for all that the Catholic Church could bring to bear on the debate. And Luther stood many times alone, perhaps fearful, perhaps not. Knowing the personality of Luther, uh, maybe he wasn't all that fearful because he was very Pauline, shall we say, in his personality. But that causes me to ask the question, what could get him to do it? What could possibly cause Luther to withstand the onslaught, to withstand the criticism, to, to stand up for what he knew was true in the face of opposition, in many cases, I'm sure, from his own friends, his own fellow Augustinian monks. Luther, don't rock the boat. Luther, just just go with the flow. Luther... That verse doesn't necessarily have to say that. Maybe we could understand it a different way. Luther, sit down. Don't just stand there. What could cause him to stand alone? I'm firmly convinced it was because of his study of Scripture, and in particular, his study of the book of Romans. He studied Romans and was studying Romans during the time that the Reformation took place. And, and I wanna walk through just briefly this morning, some points from the book of Romans that will be review for you because we have seen them already from other passages of scripture. It's not from the book of Romans alone, but as Luther walked through Romans, I feel like there was momentum that was gaining on his own understanding of scripture and his own understanding of salvation beginning in romans 3 2 i'll begin in verse 1 that's the beginning of the the idea he says then what advantage has the jew when he talks about circumcision and circumcision being circumcision of the heart then what advantage has the jew or what is the benefit of circumcision great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. I'm gonna stop there for a minute, and I'm going to depart from Paul's main point on circumcision, and just notice in passing that Paul calls the scripture the oracles of God. Sola Scriptura. Our, Our knowledge, our understanding of salvation being gained from scripture alone. The very oracles of God. Solus Christus, or solo Christo, Uh, Jesus' own claims could be used in this regard, because Jesus says to his, his audiences, says to the crowds, come unto me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, we need only read a little further in Romans and Paul picks up that theme. But now, apart from the law, this is Romans 3.21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Through whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul goes on, of course, in Romans 5, we won't read all of Romans 5, but to compare that through one man came sin, and thus all die, but also through one man comes life, and thus all may live. Christ alone. Sola fide, we've already seen this in the passage in Romans 3. Um, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We could continue, sola gratia, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There are none who seek for God. Paul has just said that earlier in chapter three, Verses 10 and 11, none seek after God. There are none who are good. No one on their own is going to come to God. It must begin by God's grace. And we come to our final sola today, Solideo Gloria. This is kind of the one that ties all the others together. Like an analogy, we live in Montana, and it feels like winter outside today. Uh, The analogy we might use is, I don't know how many of you have actually put chains on a car before. But when you put chains on a car, you you wrap them around the tire. But if you take off right then and leave them like that, they're pretty loose. And they're going to start flopping. And pretty soon, they're going to fly off. And so in the little box that your chains come in, there's also this type of a bungee strap that you have to wrap through to tie the chain and make it tight so that it will stay on the tire. And it looks like when you're all done, like your tire has spokes going to the chains. Well, the hub, the center, what ties everything together is to God alone be the glory. Psalm 115, many of you know it. You've probably sung it before. Psalm 115.1 begins how? Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name be glory. To your name be praise. Not to us. Paul, in his development of the theology of salvation and his explanation of the theology of salvation, concludes his theological section in just such a way. In chapter 11 of Romans, Paul is winding down and starting to think of, okay, what will I say now practically? And Paul says in the end of chapter 11, To God alone be the glory. After all the theological development in Romans 1 through 11, Paul concludes with a statement ascribing the worth of the plan of salvation, including even the beginning of creation, to the worthiness of God. God is worthy of all glory because he's the one that planned it, he's the one that initiated it, and he's the one who is carrying it out. Luther knew that the intricacies of salvation could easily be placed into a context that would glorify the process or the product, distracting from the one who is putting all this together and carrying it all through. He rightly then observed that a final purpose must be defined that would give direction and a final goal to all of salvation. And this goal must be the glory of God. The Apostle Paul would have it no other way. Luther, therefore, could have it no other way as well. Let's define some terms for a moment. Glory may be defined as worthiness, honor, high reputation, sometimes even beauty. Uh, The Hebrew word, chavod, with which some of you are familiar, means heavy or significant, weighty impressive might be another way of understanding this idea of glory now where do humans see the glory of God for a time they saw it in the tabernacle they followed it through the wilderness and it would come to rest on the tabernacle they saw it reflected a bit on the face of Moses it was a thing In other words, that they could see. It shined brightly. And they probably imagined it was something of tremendous beauty. After all, look at the effect it had on Moses. This was before makeup. And uh, Moses shined like the sun. Uh, Then for a while, they saw it in the temple. They saw it shining. When God was present in the temple, the temple glowed temple shone like the sun. But where did they see it most clearly? Where did they see it most eminently? John knows. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1. You see, in John chapter 1, John is trying to explain a bit about who this Jesus is. And in verse 14, he says of the word, that it became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or some of your versions read, Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John's purpose is to demonstrate and extol the glory of God revealed in the Son. That's why he chooses this word, this strange word to us, really, Lagos, Jesus is the Word of God. John chooses Lagos to represent Jesus as the premier expression of God's glory. The Hebrew word Lagos means word or expression, saying. It's as though God breathed out his own nature, Hebrews 1 tells us, and Jesus appears. The significance of, the, of all this is discovered in the fact that glory is not something that we give to God, it is something that we are. I need to explain this statement, but let me repeat it first. It's not something that we give to God. Now, ultimately, it is an expression of ourselves, so in that sense, we do give it. But more importantly, perhaps, Glory is something that we are to God. Let me explain this a little bit. Ron Allen, one of my professors, was gracious enough to comment on Isaiah uh, 6.3 for me uh, in regard to creation. And he translated Isaiah 6.3 this way. He says, The fullness of all the earth is... God's glory. We usually translate that passage, in fact, most of our English versions translate it, uh, that the whole earth is full of his glory, as though the earth was a a receptacle and glory was filling the earth somehow. Ron Allen retranslates Isaiah 6.3, and I think appropriately so, to indicate that God's glory is, doesn't just dwell in the earth, but rather the earth is the expression. What we see in springtime, though it's hard to see today, what we see in springtime is the very expression of God's glory. Luther understood this, didn't he? He's the one who said that the gospel is exclaimed every spring in every leaf the life that comes forth and bursts on the scene. A wonderful analogy. Luke chapter nine, twenty-three. Jesus was saying to them all, if, anyone, if any one of you would come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He goes on to say, for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet lose his own soul? What does it mean to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? Does it just mean that we trot along behind? You guys remember the book It uh, came out several years ago, Not a Fan? What was the point of the book? Be more than just a fan, exactly. I, I'm not a fan of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus wonderful point. Yeah. Uh, Something that perhaps we all need to be reminded of on on regular occasions. Taking up our cross daily. It's not just trotting along behind. It's actually being willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. To live like Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that he is the perfect image of God in John 14, 6 through 9. He says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, Philip later on asks him, just show us the Father, Jesus. That'll be enough for us. Show him to us. Point him out somewhere. Let us see him. What's Jesus' response? Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you still don't understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the very expression of God the Father himself in human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are called to live the life of Jesus. Not terribly profound. Uh, You guys came here to Bible college already knowing that, but perhaps we didn't connect that last dot. And if I sound like a broken record, that's okay. I will continue throughout the rest of my life (laughs) to harp on this teaching. The last dot that we need to connect is, in living the life of Jesus, we are bringing glory to God. That's why I say, that glory isn't so much something that we give to God, it's not a commodity. Glory is best expressed in our very lives. When we live like Jesus, that is how we glorify God. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory, give honor. Recognize that God is in you. God is being displayed through you. It doesn't make us deity. That's the mistake that the cults make. No, it exalts our God. It exalts our Lord, Jesus Christ, because he's the one that we follow. Imitation, in other words, is the greatest form of glory. Being like Jesus is how we glorify God. That's why Jesus is the goal of all that we do. I'll summarize a couple of passages for us. Remember in Ephesians 4 where Paul explains that he left some as as evangelists, some as uh, prophets, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers. Why does he do that? Do you recall anybody? That That they might do what? Yeah, equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that, what does it say? I don't want to misquote it here. You guys are familiar with the passage, but let's get the exact reading. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Equipping the saints for the work of the service to the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Christ is still our goal. Not just doing ministry for the sake of doing ministry, for the sake of becoming more like Jesus. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, And him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom, in order that we may present everyone complete in Christ. That's our goal. This is a high standard. You might call it the pursuit of excellence. It's a good way of phrasing it, it seems. It's, it's the way that Peter phrases it in Second Peter chapter 1. He says in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We could say that because God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness, therefore we should pursue excellence, and certainly that might be true, but that's kind of a roundabout way to get to the point. Just because we've been given something, therefore, we should pursue excellence, might be true. But what does the text say? We could perhaps point to the latter half of verse 3 and discuss the translation of the text there because it is a dative locative instrumental that is used, which means the latter half of verse 3 could be translated by his own glory and excellence, or if you have a King James version or a ESV, it could be translated to his own glory and excellence. Being called to God's excellence makes it clear, but several of our versions, New American Standard, NIV, New King James, all read has called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you catch the difference? One is saying that it is by means of God's glory and excellence that we are called. In other words, it all depends on the character of God, everything that happens. The other is saying that our goal is to pursue glory and excellence because these are the goals to which he has called us. In other words, God wants us to pursue glory and excellence. Why does this matter? Seems like I'm nitpicking, well, One of the reasons it matters is because hermeneutics is the lifeline of the Christian. In other words, understanding your Bible is going to be the key to your life. So in that sense, it does matter to get into the nitty-gritty occasionally. Uh, We cannot know what God wants of us if our interpretive skills are dull. It's like chopping a tree with a dull axe, or skinning a deer with a dull knife. It'll take you forever. You might eventually get it done, but I don't want to see what it looks like in the end. (laughs) Or perhaps like following a broken compass. You may not get there. Solution to this passage? The word by, instrumental, seems best. Why is that the case? Well, number one, it parallels verse one, where Paul says, Simon, or excuse me, where Peter says, Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It seems like that's perhaps a parallel idea, instrumental idea. It fits well with the meaning of the text that it is by God's own glory and excellence that he has called us. In other words, God's character matters in the calling. It fits also well with what follows in verse four, for by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now here's the clincher. Verse five says, now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. There's the same word. Paul hasn't gotten, or Peter, excuse me, hasn't gotten to that point yet. But, in a sense, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Because here, in verse 5, we are told explicitly that we are to pursue excellence. That the glory of God is our highest goal. Conclusion of this passage, we are clearly to apply all diligence in pursuing excellence, in verse 5 especially, because God has made us partakers of the divine nature by means of his own glory and excellence. How then might we phrase it? Well, perhaps our best for his glory, or I can do no better than my utmost for his highest. That phrase haunts me in a wonderful way wonderful way. Why am I telling you all this in a discussion of sola Deo Gloria? Well, I would propose to you today that we have spent too much time excusing the lack of Christlikeness in our existence and too little time disciplining ourselves to achieve it. Of course, the mystical or spiritual objection to such an accusation is to say that we should allow the Spirit to do His work and not do it ourselves. But what if this is a false dichotomy? What if He has given us everything uh, through His divine power, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness? What if God has left us all the internal and external tools to achieve this in material reality so that we do not fall into the Gnostic ditch of mere mental reform on one side or the behaviorist ditch of pharisaical legalism on the other? Instead, verse 4, by these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply excellence. Bring your best to the table. Give your all in what you are doing. Paul, of course, understands this as well. We're reading Peter, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, what? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Maybe Frank Martin was right. Anybody know who Frank Martin is? (laughs) He's not a Christian, I'll tell you that much, so... Don't be thinking of, did I read him in church history? No. I, Frank Martin is an NCAA basketball coach. Coaches at South Carolina now. Previously, I think it was K-State. Is that right? Uh, what's that? No, no. He's, uh, Frank Martin has a distinct look about him. He has a glare that his players know well. Frank Martin. Current NCAA coach, former high school math teacher, and truancy officer. He used to go collect students off the street corner or roll them out of bed and and into the bathroom so that they'd brush their teeth and make it to school on time. Uh, Also a former bouncer. uh, So maybe if your bouncing career uh, starts to tank, you can become an NCAA basketball coach. Frank Martin was asked the question, How do you get so much out of your kids? South Carolina came into the NCAA tournament, uh, a seventh seed, and they made the final four. Shouldn't have happened. How do you get so much out of your kids? Here was his response. You know what makes me sick to my stomach? When I hear grown people say that kids have changed, kids haven't changed. Kids don't know anything about anything. We've changed as adults. We demand less of kids. We expect less of kids. We make their lives easier instead of preparing them for what life is truly about. We're the ones who have changed. I'm here today to tell you, don't sell yourself short. Don't quit before you've begun. Don't settle for mediocrity. If if it's all to God's glory alone, if Jesus is really worth it all, and Revelation 4 and 5 seem to think that he is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy. Then I have to ask you this question. What are your expectations for your summer? What's your summer going to look like? On Tuesday, we asked you, how are you different after 30 weeks of Bible college? Well, I want to ask you, how will you be different after 15 weeks of summer? Sola Deo Gloria. We are called... To excellence, to live your life for the glory of God alone. Ready, set, go. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. You are gracious to give us the gift of time time in which we can grow, time in which we can live on this stage that we call planet Earth. Live for the sake of your glory and your honor. You give us time so that we might reflect the glory of your Son by becoming like him. Lord, help us. Help us not to squander it. Help us never to take it for granted, knowing that every moment counts. Every moment is a moment in the spotlight, where we can ask, "Would they? Would they really see Jesus?" Lord, and that, may that become our mantra for every day of our lives, whether young or not as young, would they see Jesus in me this day? Amen.